You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. If you were with us last week, we looked at the passage right before uh, what was just read to you. And if, if you remember, uh, our, our passage last week ended with great comfort, with great hope for the Thessalonians and for us. If you remember, some of their friends and loved ones had died. And so Paul, in the previous passage, comforted them about death by telling them about the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Lord. This is what he said. He said, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So resurrection, the answer to death, that's gonna happen. Then we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So reunion with those who have gone before us in death. And so we will always be with the Lord. So resurrection and reunion always, forever. And and the Thessalonians and and, and we, I think, were so comforted by these words, right? The the future coming of the Lord gave them great hope and give us great hope in the face of death. But the Thessalonians knew something else about the coming of the Lord or the day of the Lord, as Paul calls it in, in, in our text today, it wouldn't just be a day of resurrection and redemption. It would also be a day of reckoning, right? Not just a day of salvation. It'd be a day of judgment. The Old Testament often talked about the day of the Lord in very sobering terms. Listen to what the prophet Zephaniah says about the day of the Lord. He spoke about the day of the Lord more than any other of the prophets He said, the great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast, a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry. So you got clouds, you got battle cries, you got trumpets, Actually, all the things that Paul mentioned last week when he talked about the coming of the Lord, only this time it doesn't sound so good. (laughs) It doesn't sound so comforting, right? It sounds like judgment. If the day of the Lord is a day of judgment, then how do we prepare for it? If it's a day of reckoning, how do we get ready for it? Well, the Thessalonians had an idea. And their idea was, hey, Paul, why don't you tell us when it is? Give us the date of the day of the Lord, and we'll make all the preparations in our lives. We'll be ready for it. Knowing the date of Christ's coming has actually been a fascination throughout church history. People love to speculate about the end times, don't they? I mean, whenever there's a charismatic world leader that rises to power or there's crisis or conflict in the Middle East 
Whenever there are earthquakes or wars or economic unrest or pandemics, right? Whenever, whenever there's uncertainty in the world and the world seems especially unstable, the end times prophets break out the charts and the graphs and they're like, all right, this might be it. Jesus might be on his way. I mean, is the COVID vaccine the mark of the beast? I don't know. I mean, he might be. He might be coming. And throughout church history, listen, there have been tons of predictions about the day that the Lord Jesus would come back. And the one thing that all those predictions have in common is that they've all been wrong, right? Because here we are. He hasn't come back. However, that doesn't mean we shouldn't anticipate his coming. And it doesn't mean that his coming doesn't have a bearing on our lives right now. So how should we live in light of his coming? Like how should his, the reality of his coming affect our lives right now? That's the question for the Thessalonians to answer and for us to answer. How are we to live in light of the day of the Lord? All right, before we get to that question though, I wanna answer the question, what do we know about the day of the Lord? What do we know about it? You see what we know about it there in verses one through three. Look at verses one through three. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse one. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, or the times and the dates, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So apparently the Thessalonians had asked Paul about the timing of the day of the Lord. And Paul says, well, concerning times and dates, I don't need to write anything to you because no one knows the time and the date. So if I write anything to you about that, I'll just be making something up. So I'm not going to write anything about the, the timing of, of the Lord's coming. I don't know if you remember, but the disciples of Jesus had asked Jesus the same question in Matthew 24. They asked Jesus, when will these things be, Lord, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus said, concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only knows. So the angels did not have any inside info about this. And Jesus says, I don't even know when it is. That means Paul doesn't know. That, that means end times guy who's selling books on Amazon doesn't know. That means no one knows. And it's like, well, bummer. What do we know about the day of the Lord? Well, Paul tells us two things here. He uses two similes to describe what we know about the day of the Lord. Look at verse two. He says, you are fully aware, meaning you know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. There's the first simile or illustration. And then verse three, it will come as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. When Paul says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, he's just reiterating what Jesus taught about it in Matthew 24. A thief is unannounced. 
Uh, uh, burglars don't walk around neighborhoods during the daytime hanging door hangers on the doorknobs saying, we're going to hit your house next Tuesday, right? So be ready for that. Because for a burglar or a thief to be successful, surprise is their ally. That's why they come at night when no one can see them or when everyone's sleeping. Uh, this week, um, a thief stole one of my credit cards out of my wallet when I was at the gym. My wallet was in a locker locked up, but the thief picked the lock and then relocked it so that I didn't know that uh, he had stolen uh, my credit card. And he got one of my cards and he ran up like $2,500 at a shoe store called Dirty Kicks. (laughs) Okay. And for some reason, my credit card company did not immediately flag that (laughs) because that's where I get my Jordans. I get them at Dirty Kicks. But I found out later, I wasn't expecting that this week. And that's the point of the illustration. The day of the Lord will be unexpected. It'll catch people off guard. We know that. Now, labor pains, which is the second illustration, is a little bit different. Labor pains are not unexpected, right? They they are expected. In fact, if you are pregnant, you are by definition expecting, right? So a pregnant woman knows that labor pains are coming. She just doesn't know when exactly. But you could plan for labor pains. When Amy was pregnant with our first child, we went to classes We sat on the floor with pillows and she practiced her breathing and I did absolutely nothing helpful uh, in that moment. But we had our route to the hospital planned out. We had our bags packed. You can plan for labor pains, but here's the deal. You can't stop them. You can't stop. They come on suddenly and once they start, they're unavoidable. And that's the point that Paul's making. The day of the Lord is unavoidable. It's inevitable. Verse three says, and they will not escape. It's inescapable. So what do we know about the day of the Lord from these verses? It'll be unexpected and it's unavoidable. No warning, no escape. Now, there's an important little phrase in verse three that the Thessalonians all would have been familiar with. Look at verse three. It says, while people are saying there is peace and security or peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them. That phrase, peace and security, would have been immediately recognizable to the Thessalonians and would have made them think of the Roman Empire because they were a part of the Roman Empire. Maybe you remember learning in history class about Pax Romana, Roman peace, which was a 200-year period of unprecedented peace and prosperity and stability across the empire, and this was written during Pax Romana. No one had ever seen anything like the empire. It it was incredible. For them, it was like, wow, this is the kingdom that has finally ushered in peace and prosperity for the world. It's one of the reasons that Caesar was venerated, worshiped as a god in cities like Thessalonica, right? And so it was easy for people to think, well, life is good. Nothing will ever disrupt our peace. Nothing will ever threaten our security. But this passage is saying that any peace and security, any sense of peace and security that ignores God is false peace and security. 
It reminds me of the prophet Jeremiah, which I've been reading, when God says, the prophets and the priests dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. See, if there's no peace with God, then there's not real peace, right? If sin in a society, in a culture, is not dealt with beneath the surface, then it's only the illusion of peace, but it's not true peace. Now listen, when, when, we, when you live in the empire, like when, when you live in a place that's relatively peaceful, relatively secure, re- and comfortable, it's easy to think, well, this is gonna last forever. When you live in a place like Austin, where everybody's moving here and house prices are going up and there's jobs and opportunities and cool restaurants and it's just a great place to live, it's easy to think, this is gonna last forever. The, the kingdom must be here. And I think as Americans... And as Austinites, we are especially vulnerable to getting lulled to sleep by the peace and prosperity around us and finding our peace and security in all the stuff of the empire rather than in the Lord. And so Paul wants to jolt us awake and remind us of the day of the Lord. I think he wants to pour cold water on our face and slap us and say, hey, wake up. Like, pay attention. Remember reality. Jesus is coming. So how should we live in light of that? In light of that day, how do we live? We'll look at verse four and following. How are we to live in light of the day? Verse four. But you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night, or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. Paul did not know about day drinking, I guess. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, there's a lot of contrast going on here. There's darkness and light. There's day and night. There's being asleep versus being awake. There's there's being drunk versus being sober. I think if we're going to understand how Paul is using all these images, we need to understand something very particular about how the Bible works. The Bible divides history into two ages. This present age in the age to come, right? There's this present age and there's the age to come. This present age is the world as it is now, the world as we know it. And because of its rejection of God, it's often characterized by things like sin and suffering and death and evil. Sometimes there's an outright defiance of God. Sometimes there's a total ignorance that God even exists. And so the Bible talks about this present age in terms of darkness or night. The age to come is the world as it will be, the world that we're longing for. The day will dawn, right? And it'll be an age of light because there'll be no more evil, no more sin, no more suffering. It'll be an age of shalom, which is universal flourishing among all people and universal knowledge 
of God. And the day of the Lord is right in the middle of that. Is That's what will usher in the age to come. And, and so the day of the Lord will be a day of redemption, but it'll also be a day of refining, right? Because the world will be purified of evil and suffering and injustice and unrighteousness. So it'll be a day of salvation, but also a day of judgment. Now, when Jesus came the first time, we celebrated at Christmas. He inaugurated the age to come, but he didn't bring it in fully. Now, he is the light of the world, and so he, he, brought some, he pulled some of the daylight from the age to come into this present age. So now we live in this overlap of the ages. The, the age of darkness is still here, but light has come. Isaiah Chapter 60 talks about that. Listen to this. Isaiah says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the, of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So God's people evidently have been brought into the light, meaning through faith in the Messiah, we know God. We're aware of his kingdom. First Peter chapter two, he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Second Corinthians chapter four, he has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. John chapter 8, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So back to our text in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says there's two types of people in the world, children of the day and children of the night. So there's daytime people and there's nighttime people. It's a metaphor, right? Daytime people are those who identify with Christ and his coming and identify with the age to come. Nighttime people are those who don't identify with Christ, who are not aware of his coming, and who identify and their life is rooted in this present age. And Paul says, live like who you are. Live like who you are. In other words, your identity should determine your lifestyle in relation to the day of the Lord. Did you see the words he uses to characterize nighttime people? He uses the words asleep and drunk. Verse seven, those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Asleep meaning they're unaware of the day, right? They're apathetic towards it. They're just kind of yawning at the idea that Jesus might come back, that there might be judgment. And drunk meaning they're not in control. They're not alert to his coming. They've numbed themselves to the idea that there may be more to reality than meets the eye. But he says daytime people are to be awake, to be sober. Verse six, let us keep awake and be sober. Awake meaning they're aware of Jesus and his coming. They're alert to the fact that he may come at any time. They're paying attention to the things of God, not being lulled to sleep by the things of the world. Sober meaning they're self-controlled in how they approach life. They're clear-headed about reality. They're watchful for the coming of the Lord. So according to this, Christians should live like daytime people. 
Like we should live as if we're aware of God and clear-eyed about the coming of Jesus. We were having a sermon planning meeting about this passage and one of our Providence elders was there at the meeting and he said, you know, the thing that convicts me about this is thinking about all the ways I might live as if there is no God. And I was like, well, what do you mean? Like, to flesh that out. What are some of the ways you might live as if there, there's no God? And he said, well, how I spend my time, how I accumulate stuff, how I vacation, how I consume entertainment, how I view kids' sports, how I treat food and alcohol, how I think about ambition, how I think about money. Should I keep going? And I was like, no, that's enough. That's <laughs> enough conviction for me. The question is, does our life look any different than those who don't believe in Jesus? Like, do we live with an awareness of God as if he actually exists? Does the reality of his coming shape anything about us? Our schedule, our choices, our lifestyle, our decisions. One commentary I read this week said that the coming of Jesus will surprise us intellectually because only the Father knows the day or the hour. But it shouldn't surprise us ethically. I love that thought. It'll, it'll surprise us intellectually, but it should not surprise us ethically because he should find us faithfully living for him. Like, would the coming of Jesus catch me off guard ethically? Based on, like if he came back tonight, considering how I spend my time, how I spend my money, how I treat people, what I'm living for, would it catch me off guard? We're called to live as daytime people, to live in light of his coming. How do we do it? It sounds hard, because it is. According to verse eight, we actually have to fight for it. We have to fight for it. Paul says we've got to put on battle armor if we're gonna live as daytime people because the pull of the world is so strong, right? The, the, the lure to live for ourselves, to live for the moment, to forget about Jesus and his coming is so strong. So Paul says in verse eight, look at verse eight. He says, since we belong to the day, we're daytime people, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. These are defensive pieces of armor. The, bre the breastplate protects our heart. The, the helmet protects our head because what we love in our heart and what we think in our head shapes the way we live. And so he's saying we're gonna need the armor of faith, love, and, and hope to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. When he says, he uses this trifecta of faith, hope, and love, that Paul uses that a lot. Faith just means that we take God at his word. We believe his promises. We act on his promises. We trust in Jesus and his work, not in our own merit. Faith fights off things like cynicism and smug self-reliance and trusting in our own righteousness. Love means that our lives are characterized by giving ourselves away for others by giving ourselves fully to, to loving God with all our being. So love fights off things like self-centeredness and apathy and gluttony and taking advantage of others. Hope means our lives are confidently focused on the expectation that God uh, will fully redeem us and fully renew all things. And so hope fights off things like despair and anxiety and wanting to throw in the towel in life. And we all feel those things, so we need hope 
to fight those things. We're called to live as daytime people, but I want you to know we cannot do it on our own, right? Because the pull of the empire is too strong. It's so easy to get pulled into the false peace and security of the empire, the world around us, and we lose sight of Jesus. And so Paul says, fight to follow Jesus. Fight to follow him with the weapons of faith, hope, and love. We are to live wide awake, eagerly looking for his coming. And we can be confident. I want you to know we can be confident on the day of his coming. Uh, Even though it's a day of judgment, we can be confident in that day of judgment. Why? That's the last thing I want to answer. I want to answer that question. Why can we be confident in the day? Look at verse 9. Verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, meaning whether we're uh, uh, alive or dead, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. I love this because Paul ends with good news. When the day of the Lord comes, our destiny is not wrath. Our destiny is salvation. Not because we've lived a good moral life, Not because we've checked all the religious boxes, not because we figured out our spirituality, not because we're smarter than the rest of humanity or more holy or more righteous in in any way. Uh, It's not because God owes us anything. The good news here is not that God saves the good people, right? Our salvation, according to this, is not based on our performance at all. If it were, It wouldn't be good news, and we wouldn't have much confidence in the day of the Lord, because who can stand up in the judgment? Who can stand up in it? This says our salvation is based on Christ's performance. Look at verse 10. It says, he died for us so that we might live with him. He died our death so that we could have his life, so that we might live with him, the one who lives forever, so that we might be joined to him and live with him. And don't miss this. The judge, the judge who is coming to set all things right is not an angry, spiteful, unpredictable tyrant of a king. He's the man of sorrows who died for us. Isn't that great? He's the the judge took our judgment on himself so that we might live. What a savior we have. I think that's why Paul says in verse 11 to encourage one another with these words, because it's so encouraging when you think about why we can be confident on the day of the Lord. Now listen, I know that talking about judgment in the day of the Lord feels heavy. Maybe it feels a little scary. Uh, I got to admit that I was not dying to preach on this subject today, right? My last three sermons have been about sex Death and today, judgment, okay? I see how the sermon scheduling went while I was on sabbatical. It's all come clear to me. So I was not dying to preach on judgment day today. I mean, it's ACL weekend. People are out enjoying the city. It, it, it was Texas OU weekend, which felt like judgment day to me. Um, 
you know, the weather's nice. People are out on the lake. And, you know, I, was, I had to go to the office yesterday and South Congress is just hopping and just people are just enjoying life and there's peace and security and it just feels great. And I'm like, why do I got to talk about the day of the Lord and judgment and wrath and all that stuff? Sounds like bad news. And then I was reminded that the day of the Lord is actually really a good thing that we should long for. N.T. Wright says that in the Bible, God's coming judgment is celebrated. He says, listen to this. He says, in a world of injustice and bullying and violence and arrogance and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place is the best news there can be. He says, faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. Isn't that true? How can he be good if he didn't do something about evil? The day of the Lord, according to this, is coming. And the question for us is, where do you stand with that? Where do you stand? If you're a Christ follower, your destiny is salvation. But listen, if he came today, would you be cheering? Would you be like, oh, sweet? Or would you be caught off guard, ethically speaking? The call here is to live like a daytime person. Live like he's coming today. It's the best way to live. If you're not a Christ follower, would you consider putting your faith, your trust in Jesus? According to this, he died for you so that you can live with him. And I want you to know he loves you. He wants you to experience life. He wants you to experience peace and joy, genuine peace, genuine security, genuine life, the kind of life we all long for. I think this passage is here because we all need to take seriously the reality of the day of the Lord. All of us do. And so I would just say, let this passage get under your skin a little bit. Let it bother you a little bit. Right? Don't, just, don't just walk away from it and forget it. If it comforts you, I think that's great. And there's comfort here for us. But if it makes you feel uncomfortable, I think it's worth asking, God, why does this make me feel uncomfortable? What is it that you want me to do about this? He's calling us to live in the light. He's calling us into the light and to live in the light. Let's thank him for this. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.